1: available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. Hi, this is Christopher Kimball. Thanks for downloading this week's podcast. You can go to our website, 177milkstreet.com, for our recipes, culinary ideas from around the world, or our latest cookbooks. Now, here's this week's show. This is Mill Street Radio from PRX. I'm your host, Christopher Kimball.
2: There's a lot of magic in Puerto Rico. I, I talk a few times in, in coconuts and colors about cookies, who are these tiny little frogs that are all over the island, and they they make this very sweet little cookie sound. You know, kind of the the soundtrack of Puerto Rico at night are these little these little musical frogs making this very sweet sound.
1: Von Diaz grew up in Atlanta, Georgia, and spent summers with a grandmother in the suburbs of San Juan. Today, Diaz and I chat about what to order at a roadside kiosco, garlic sauce done right, and the story behind the world's best homemade breakfast sandwich. Before we get to the cooking of Puerto Rico, I chat with Molly Ye. Ye spent most of her life in big cities from Chicago to New York. In 2013, she moved to her husband's beet farm in East Grand Forks, Minnesota. Ye's TV show, Girl Meets Farm, debuted on the Food Network in June 2018. Molly, how are you?
3: I'm great, Chris. How are you?
1: I'm good. Um, So, Jewish, Chinese, Midwest. uh, Brisket meets Sichuan meets hot dish. I've seen a lot of mashups in my time. This is one of the more interesting ones. You live in Grand Forks, that you describe as the North Pole sometimes, (laughs) So, when you mess with their hot dishes, what's the reaction?
3: Some people get excited that um, these hot dishes that they grew up with are gaining new life. Other people are like, well, that's not how my mom used to make it. So, it's kind of messing with tradition. But most people seem pretty, pretty open to it. And it's just been a ton of fun because hot dish is the best thing when you live in the North Pole. And so to be able to kind of take the hot dish equation, which is a protein plus a cream soup plus a starch plus a vegetable, and then make it using ingredients that are trendy these days and are and techniques that kind of eliminate the use of a canned cream soup or, or frozen or canned vegetables. Um, it's so much fun. And I just love it. I'm I can't believe that I went for so long not knowing what a hot dish was.
1: But your cooking is pretty sophisticated. I mean, zoog, tahini sauce, hummus, but you also talk about which tater tots to use in your hot dish. So the range is from tater tots to really good hummus. That's a pretty, you know, that that's a long way from the Middle East to uh, the North Pole, right?
3: Well, you know, I mean, if... I want hummus or if I have a bagel craving or a matzo ball craving or a shakshuka craving, you know, there are so many delicious Middle Eastern restaurants in bigger cities that I just don't have here. And, and even something as simple as pizza delivery we don't have.
1: Wait, everybody's got pizza delivery. No?
3: Oh, I mean, we have an amazing, adorable pizza parlor in town, but we live right outside the realm of pizza delivery. Uh. So if I'm starving on a Friday night and there's a snowstorm, I've got to make it myself.
1: So let's go back in time. You went to Juilliard for percussion, one of, I think, two people uh, who are accepted in that department. Percussion, as you describe it, is you stand around and then, you know, you hit something three times. Uh, why percussion? And how are you taught percussion? I don't really know anything about it.
3: hmm Yeah, so I grew up in a very musical household. My dad plays the clarinet and... There wasn't. There was never one day where I thought I would like to be a percussionist. It was just always kind of known. I loved the fact that there were so many different instruments and so many things to do, and the, the amount of sounds that you can make with percussion are endless. My senior year of Juilliard, I played a, a piece on my senior recital that was hitting my own body. It was called Corporel and you tap your face and you scratch yourself and you make sounds with your mouth. But it was actually really hard to get some good, consistent sounds of skin on skin. And, um, and so it's a lot of just kind of sitting in a room and hitting things in different ways and figuring out what sounds the best. So you're
1: now on a uh, fifth generation farm. Your husband's, Nick's family came from Norway uh, sugar beet farming, and you, you refer to this, it was interesting, you refer to this as mud-scented and romantic. I get the mud-scented <laughs> part, but is is sugar beet farming romantic?
3: It's totally romantic and not in the way that I envisioned a romantic farm to be when I was living in New York. When I was living in New York, I had this vision of a farm where you wake up with the sun and maybe you walk barefoot through farm fields and taste something that you pull right off of the the plant. And so when I moved here, there were a lot of new things to learn. And, you know, I came face to face with these massive tractors that just look like transformers. And the land here is, it's very, very flat. You can see land to the horizon. And so During sugar beet harvest, sugar beet harvest always starts on October 1st, and it's a 24-hour harvest because they do have to get out of the ground fast. And so one thing that is particularly romantic about this is overnight, when the tractors are still going and they're still harvesting at, you know, two and three o'clock in the morning, it'll be pitch black. But you have the stars in the sky, and then you have the lights of the tractors. And when you see it at a distance, it's almost like the sky just never ends because the lights of the tractors kind of look like the stars in the sky, and it's so peaceful and and you can smell dirt and it smells fresh and it's it's so beautiful. Uh,
1: how do you make homemade baloney?
3: <laughs> I mean, um, I,
1: the idea okay. never occurred to me, but it was—I thought it was an interesting notion. So,
3: well, yeah. Um, Took a lot of time and a lot of experimentation, but you basically blend meat for quite some time until it gets really, really smooth. And then you pack it into saran wrap as opposed to putting it into a sausage casing and then you poach it. And, and when you do the saran wrap, it kind of ends up looking extremely gross. And I don't, I think it's the homemade Lunchable in my book is probably the one recipe that nobody is ever going to make. And I knew that going in and I'm okay with it. I just, Lunchables were one of my favorite foods growing up and I just wanted it to be in my book.
1: So, so, so now what? So you've been on this farm for what, five years now. How long have you been there?
3: I've been on the farm five years.
1: What is it you found in Grand Forks you didn't find anywhere else you've lived? And two, what what do you miss you can't find in Grand Forks?
3: Well, the main things that I learned about when I moved here that I had never heard of when I lived in New York was um, there was lefse, the thin, flat Norwegian potato bread, and then, of course, hot dish, and cookie salad, which... Is this Upper Midwest delight of cookies and um, and whipped cream and pudding and fruit, and I love I love that it's called a salad, and then the things that I miss about New York. Okay, there's one thing, and it's hand pulled noodles from my favorite mm. place in New York, Jian Famous Foods, and they come with this spicy lamb sauce, and they're chewy and soft, and spicy and amazing. So those are one thing that I either need to learn how to make or need to figure out how to have like a drone delivered to me while they're still hot. But I mean, most other things like bagels and pizza dough, those were things that I missed initially when I moved here, but I kind of put my mind to it and figured out how to make a good bagel and figured out how to make good pizza dough.
1: Bagels in the North Pole. Maybe that's the name of your next book. I love it. Molly, thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you.
3: Thank you so much, Chris. It was an honor.
1: That was blogger and cookbook author Molly Ye. Mill Street Radio is also available as a podcast. You can subscribe, download our shows, and listen whenever you want. New shows are available every Friday on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, TuneIn, and Spotify. Right now, Sarah Moulton and I will be taking your calls. Sarah is, of course, the author of Home Cooking 101 and the star of Sarah's Weeknight Meals on public television.
4: Sarah, hello. Well, hello, Chris.
1: Time to take some calls. Yes, it is. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling? Hi, this is Nathan from Columbus, Ohio. Hi, Nathan. How are you? Hi, Nathan. Hey, good. How are you? Good. How can we help you?
5: So a few years back, I listened to a podcast where I heard a chef... Uh, describe making his own vinegar from local craft beer and spirits. And uh, almost everyone in my family loves to cook and try new ingredients. And I just thought it would be great to make something like that and give it to them as a gift. Uh, and Chris, I heard you mention something about
1: making your own vinegar on a recent show and just wondered if you could describe your process. Yeah, there are two ways to do it. One is to start with a mother, etc. But the other way, I got this from a, a French company that makes a crock I bought. And they said, just put unprocessed, unfiltered vinegar in the crock with wine. How much? Well, I think it's one part vinegar to five parts wine, something like that. And then, you know, Bragg's uh, apple cider vinegar, it's unprocessed, so it has live culture. So I put that in with, you know, a bottle of wine, a couple bottles of wine, and uh, let it sit for a month or six weeks, and I had vinegar. Do you do
4: anything to it?
1: Just top it up.
4: Just keep adding more wine? Keep adding more wine. Because it's open to the air or? It does breathe, yes. Do you put like anything over it so bugs don't get in?
1: There is a top, but it's not air. Okay. Yeah, Air will get in. Yeah, and now I have this large, you know, two-quart crock full of vinegar. The only question is, how good is it? And that's a function of Uh, what you started with.
4: Okay, so you start with good wine. Yeah. And so yours is very good, of course.
1: The thing that's good is if you ever have leftover wine, which is a question mark, but if you do... And you're drinking decent wine. You just throw that in the crock. Ah. Now that's actually I like that. Okay. There are times you have people over and there's a third of a bottle, and put that in the crock. Nice. Yeah, so it works fine. Nice. Yeah. I mean, you can buy now great vinegar, but as just sort of all-purpose vinegar, it's great. Oh. Yeah.
4: Clearly, I've never made vinegar, but there is this um, wonderful guy named Michael Harlan Turkel, and he wrote a book called Acid Trip. And it's all about vinegar, page after page, of how to make vinegar, whether you use a mother or you use the unfiltered. I thought the book
1: was about my time at Columbia in the early 70s. No,
4: that's a different book. And then there's recipes and all sorts of chefs weigh in, and it's a really fun, in-depth book. So you might want to check it out. So Michael Harlan Turkell Acid Trip.
5: That's great. I'll check it out.
4: Nathan, there you go.
1: So just buy some Braggs uh, and then some wine. You can get started. Yes, Okay. All right, Nathan. Thank you. Bye.
4: Thank you. Bye.
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you want to know how to use sitar or Harissa, give us a call anytime, 855-426-9843. One more time, 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at
5: MilkStreetRadio.com.
4: Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
5: Hey, this is Ben McNeil from Boston, Massachusetts. How can we help you? Well, I have a question about pizza. My family has been making homemade pizza every Friday night for the past 30 or so years. Wow. And has wild delicious, and the recipe has gone through various iterations. However, recently I had dinner at a Roman-style pizza, and I began to wonder what is the best pizza dough recipe for a home oven, you know, one that only gets as hot as 500 to 550 degrees, as opposed to a Neapolitan-style oven that can get upwards of 800, 900 to 1,000 degrees. Should I be baking more of a Roman-style pizza, or...?
1: Well, let's burst a bubble. A traditional Neapolitan pizza actually doesn't have a crisp bottom crust all the way through, and nobody in Naples cares. So if you're saying authentic, you want a really good, thin, crispy crust through the whole bottom. Is that what you're looking for?
5: Ideally, but again, I'm you know interested also in the Roman-style pizza, which is a little bit thicker, right. kind of resembling that focaccia, which I also think is right. really good.
1: What we've learned... Uh, Milk Street is a pizza steel is better than a stone. It gets hotter and conducts heat better. They're obviously heavy, but they're worth buying. They're not that expensive. And the second thing is we bake a pizza that has a topping on upper middle rack because if you bake it on the bottom, you get a lot of heat on the bottom, But the top of the pizza is not getting cooked fast enough. So by the time the top's cooked, the bottom's overcooked. And that's why a lot of pizza crusts are hard and dried out. So last, I like pizza doughs that rest overnight or two days if you have the time. So you use less yeast, either half a teaspoon, I think it is, or a teaspoon for three cups of flour and mix it up and you let that sit overnight in the fridge. And then you take it out the next day and then let it rise. And that develops flavor. And it's also easier to work the dough. It's not going to snap back on you when you go roll it out. Which is the biggest problem.
4: Chris, you have a recipe in the magazine, right?
1: Yeah, we used one, actually, with some buttermilk powder in it, which we really like because it was very malleable. But no matter what recipe you use, there's one other trick. The secret to a great crust and one that's easy to shape is the temperature of the dough when you go to roll it out. You want to get the dough up to about 75 degrees before you shape it.
4: Literally take its temperature.
1: And you can put in little disposable plastic, you know, tubs and then put it into warm water to heat it up, or you can just let it sit. So temperature, I think, rather than recipes, really the secret. Well, I got it in my little soapbox there.
4: You did. So, that was fun. Was that good? I learned a lot right
5: here. I should do
1: a cookie show. Ben and I Maybe. are
5: happy. Yeah. So, So temperature
1: really was the secret. So
5: I would give that a shot. I definitely have some uh, new work to do for my family. I hope they are impressed. Okay. Thanks, Ben. Thanks, Ben. Thanks so much.
1: This is Most Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Coming up next, my interview with Von Diaz, author of Coconuts and Collards, Recipes and Stories from Puerto Rico to the Deep South, right after the break.
6: This is Jason Perkins again. Just want to say thanks to everyone at Allegash for sharing. You can try Allegash White at home too. Head to slash locator to find Allegash White near you.
3: For twenty-one plus only, please drink responsibly. Allegash
9: Brewing Company, Portland, Maine.
6: This is
1: Most Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Today I chat with Von Diaz. Her debut book, Coconuts and Collards, is part cookbook and part memoir about growing up Latina in the Deep South.
2: Vaughn, how are you? I'm doing well, thanks.
1: I loved your book, Coconuts and Collards. Uh, so y- y- you went back to Puerto Rico uh, when you were, was it a, a teenager, I guess, uh, and spent the summer there. Could you just tell us a little bit about that? It was, it was a trip you did not want to make, uh, but you ended up kind of changing your life, I think.
2: Sure, so... I had the tremendous privilege um, as a kid uh, that my parents really wanted me to remain connected to Puerto Rico, and I was also— incredibly close to my grandmother, my cousin, and um, and other family that I had there. And so we went back and forth to Puerto Rico fairly frequently. But one summer when I was a preteen, my family was going through some hardship. My parents had just gotten divorced and we were we were pretty strapped for cash. And so my mom sent me to Puerto Rico to spend the summer with my grandmother. And so I, I went back that summer. Um, I went back at least one subsequent summer and, um, and spent just a really complicated but simultaneously magical time reconnecting with the island where I was born, but where I hadn't grown up, you know. So I I grew up in Atlanta. I, you know, considered myself a, kind of a pretty typical Southern kid in a lot of ways. And there was a lot about Puerto Rico that felt really foreign to me, but a lot that felt kind of like it was in my bones. There were things that I understood and connected with that I didn't quite understand. And I had this amazing opportunity to go and um, spend this time with with my loved ones, my grandmother in particular, who helped me, whether I realized it or not at the time, helped me kind of massage and negotiate these um, challenging questions that I had about my own identity at the time.
1: So... Just paint the picture for us. Uh, Where did she live? What did it look like? What was the kitchen like? Um, It was very different than, I assume, Atlanta, right?
2: Yeah, absolutely. It was very different than Atlanta. So my grandmother lived in an area of Puerto Rico called Altamesa, Mesa, um, which is, a, I would say, a, a neighborhood, kind of a suburb outside of just outside of San Juan, kind of near Rio Piedras. And um, it was a fairly typical suburb. Uh, my grandmother's house was really magical to me because of how different it was than the homes that I lived in in um, in the South. So um, it was a fairly typical Puerto Rican house, probably similar to something you might see in Miami. So almost entirely, you know, concrete um, with no glass windows, these sort of metal shutters instead of windows, bars on top of the metal shutters um, in the windows, and then um, what we call in Puerto Rico, a marquesina, which is a, a front porch or front patio. And that's Tata's Marquesina, Tata is what I, I call my grandmother, um, was um, a, a really beautiful kind of magical botanical garden. It was completely surrounded by these kind of geometric pattern iron grates. The front door was, you know, triple padlocked with a heavy chain because <laughs> um, theft and um, robbery is super common in Puerto Rico. And the floors were kind of, you know, off-white speckled tile in the Marquesina and then throughout the house And it was the kind of um, house where, you know, air seemed to flow through it all the time. And she had this super tiny kitchen. It was probably, if I had to guess, I don't know, maybe um, six feet by 10 feet. And it was just kind of a little, you know, a little galley kitchen. It had everything that you needed, but nothing in excess because there really wasn't space
1: And you talk about a breakfast. Uh, She asked you what you wanted for breakfast, and you weren't hungry, and she made you essentially a grilled cheese sandwich, right?
2: Yeah. So in in my book, Coconuts and Collards, I dedicate the first chapter to— um, her cocina, her kitchen, and my grandmother was an, a really an incredible cook. She was an incredible home cook and seemed really adept at cooking just about anything. So um, there was a morning that is still really vivid in my mind where I woke up groggy from not being able to sleep well. My grandmother's room was the only room in the entire house that had air conditioning, and so my bedroom was this little tiny space with only one window, and I had this just kind of bo- rusty box fan at my feet that would blow hot air across my body all night, And <laughs> um, but it was a Saturday, and I could already hear my grandmother, who was off work that day, kind of getting things ready in the kitchen, and I could smell the super strong coffee that she made for herself every morning and also cigarette smoke from the Benson Hedges cigarettes that she smoked So I I remember getting up and kind of grumpily shuffling out into the kitchen, and there she was, you know, her hair in rollers, and she was in her, like, Saturday morning cleaning the house clothes and, you know, always with a big smile on her face and asked me what I wanted to eat. And then she suggested this incredibly decadent breakfast that she didn't make all the time but for special occasions, Um, and it was a sandwich de picadillo. Um, And picadillo is um, ground beef that is seasoned typically with sofrito and usually with like a sazon or an adobo or some other series of spices like cumin um, and oregano. And that's sauteed and used as a filling for empanadas and things like that. Um, and my grandmother used to put that in to a sandwich. And so she, you know, would take white bread and put it in a sandwich press and then mound on this delicious, savory picadillo and then put a, a slice of American cheese on it another slice of of buttered bread and then would press the sandwich. Um, and so it was this, like, Puerto Rican, like, hot pocket um, kind <laughs> of um, sandwich. And it was so full of, you know, like, this creamy melty cheese and this saucy picadillo that when she would pull the press up, like, all of this deliciousness had kind of erupted out of the edges and had caramelized around the corners. And, mm. um, and that was the breakfast she made me. Let's talk about some of the
1: food. Um, you mash garlic and salt with warm olive oil uh, and use that as a as a warm sauce, essentially, maybe add some lime juice. Is that that concept of of warm olive oil and garlic and salt as sort of a base uh, something that's used a lot in Puerto Rican cuisine?
2: Yeah. I mean, what you're describing is often called a mojo caliente. And it's a super typical kind of simple, quick and easy sauce that you might make for boiled or fried root vegetables or to pour over um, steamed vegetables or, you know, maybe even to dip in your bread. My grandmother used to make it in this really um, beautiful and interesting way. Um, She, uh, a lot of times, um, adobos and, um, and Garlic in general is smashed in a pilon, which is a large mortar and pestle that's made of wood. And my grandmother would make her mojo caliente sauce inside The Um, And so she would smash the garlic in there with the salt and add add pepper, whatever she was going to add. And then she would heat olive oil on the stove and pour it into the pilong so that the garlic would cook just in this kind of residual Hmm. heat from the olive oil. She wouldn't make it very hot. And it had this beautiful effect of seasoning her pilong so that everything that she ever, you know, crushed in there it just tasted amazing and then had sort of figured out this method of getting the garlic just right so that it it didn't over toast it didn't turn bitter it was just exactly mm-hmm. as garlicky as it should have been
1: one of the things in your book was bacalaitos uh, something i never heard of codfish funnel cakes what are what are codfish funnel
2: cakes Sure. So bacalayitos are, in my informal surveys with other Puerto Ricans and people who've been on the island, really a favorite fritter. So they're just the simplest roadside snack. Ultimately, uh, you buy them typically or you really want to buy them from a roadside kiosco is what they're called or stands kind of along the highway and small roads where folks might make one or two typically deep fried snacks, which we call cuchifritos. And bacalaitos are in essence salt cod. That's mixed with a batter that I identify as being like a funnel cake. It has the same kind of levity and that same kind of subtle sweetness that I associate with funnel cakes, um, which of course I had plenty of growing up in the South. And um, and then each chef, each cook, each kiosco vendor has kind of their extra little thing that they might add. They might add garlic. They might add some kind of herb. Um, but in its essence, it's you know it's a it's a batter with um, funky salty codfish that's that's sort of flaked out so that it goes throughout the batter and then you pour that onto hot oil and it forms um, like a pancake um, and people make them all different sizes and it's just the most decadent and at the same time funky snack and I, I think a really um, a really formative, snack for me as a kid, trying to figure out what I liked and what I didn't like, because it was such a strange taste compared to the kind of food that I was eating growing up in the South.
1: Um, Give us a little history here. I mean, Puerto Rican cooking, it's a mix of lots of different cultures. It's totally distinguished from other Cultures on other islands. Uh, how would you, just to, to someone who doesn't know much about it, in a couple sentences, how would you describe it?
2: Sure. So, Puerto Rican food is, in its essence, a hybrid of a lot of different cultures. I I think it. You know, you would be hard pressed to, as you can in many other cultures in the world, kind of say this is the original indigenous cuisine of of Puerto Rico. It is a hybrid of indigenous Taino. um, Those were the the native peoples of of Puerto Rico and many other islands in the Caribbean. Um, So indigenous Taino ingredients and techniques combined with the ingredients and techniques of um, enslaved Africans who were brought to the islands and then the um, flavors and ingredients and techniques of Spanish colonizers then combined with american ingredients and cooking techniques which came in you know in the 20th century so it's this mishmash of i would argue these four cultures that are very distinct all coming together with the ingredients that were available on the island and i would also say expressly Designed as a cuisine, not to be sort of the kind of delicate, celebratory at times, like kind of small plates you associate with Spanish cuisine, but big, hearty, stick-to-your-ribs home cooking that is sustenance and meant to fill you.
1: Is there a moment uh, or was there a moment on Puerto Rico where something happened to you or you experienced something that could only have ever happened on Puerto Rico? (laughs)
2: <laughs> so many, so many things. Um, you know, Puerto Rico is a really magical place. It's it's an incredibly beautiful island, and you know, I think we know about the bioluminescent bays in Fajardo and outside of Vieques, you know, like the beautiful rainforest in El Yunque and the waterfalls and the gorgeous beaches. Those are all things that are beautiful and unique to the island. Um, But there's a a really interesting place um, near Cabo Rojo. I'm forgetting the name of it. But there's a natural salt preserve that runs down into this kind of archipelago. And I went and visited there on one of my last trips to Puerto Rico. And as I was coming back, noticed this house that was covered in, um, in conch shells. And it was, I mean, there must have been a Thousand conch shells around this house. They had sort of created this little fence around their house, this little decorative fence, and they were sort of like all like on the roof and on the side of the house, and um, and they had them for sale. And I I bought two, um, and they're quite large, and they're kind of like the kind you might buy in you know in Tampa, Florida, that have some kind of you know air <laughs> air painted Tampa or some sort of beach scene on them. And they were just there, um, and they are from that area, and um, I don't know the when I. Saw Saw those, I sort of felt like you know this is such an iconic image of this island, and there are reasons why things become iconic because they're they're from there. So there's a lot of magic um, in Puerto Rico. There are also these I, I talk a few times in, in coconuts and collards about cookies, who are the there are these tiny little frogs that are all over the island, and they they make this very sweet little cookie sound, um, and they you know kind of similar to crickets chirping, the the chorus of you know sort of the 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 soundtrack of Puerto. Rico at night, are these little these little musical frogs making this very sweet sound? So there are a lot of things there that are that are unique. Von, thank you so much. Uh,
1: love your book. It's real cooking. It's family cooking, and uh, it, it's 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 the real deal.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: That was Von Diaz, author of Coconuts and Collards: Recipes and Stories from Puerto Rico to the Deep South. It's time to chat with Catherine Smart about this week's recipe, chocolate almond spice cookies. Catherine, how are you?
8: I'm great. How are you?
1: Um, I love cookies, as you know, Um, referred to as the cookie monster for a variety of reasons. In any case, uh, I'm tired of sugar cookies, sort of basic decorated cookies, uh, and I like something new and different, and uh, that's why we have Milk Street. come up with something new and different. So do you have something new in the cookie department?
8: We do, Chris. We have our take on a Basler Brunsley, which is a little spiced sugar cookie uh, that has a chocolate base from Switzerland. It's about as easy to put together as a sugar cookie, but because we have all these nice spices, really has a lot more flavor, and it's just a more interesting cookie. So... One of the interesting things to start is we use almond flour instead of regular flour. Now, if you were in Switzerland, you might grind up the almonds yourself, but we found it's just as easy to buy store-bought almond flour. And then we actually toast it with cinnamon and cardamom and ginger, and that's going to really amp up the base of the dough. Uh, We then roll it out just like you would a sugar cookie, and you roll it in a mix of sugar and spices.
1: So is the texture like a chocolate chip cookie or shortbread, that is, you know, sort of moist and chewy on the inside, crispy on the outside, or more just crispy throughout?
8: It is like the correct kind of chocolate chip cookie crisp, which would always be, in my humble opinion, crisp on the outside, chewy on the inside. And speaking of chocolate, we have, of course, bittersweet chocolate, which is finely chopped and incorporated in this dough. But we also added a little bit of cocoa powder, because that really reinforces that chocolate flavor.
1: You know, every time I ask for somebody new in Milk Street, I get it, <laughs> which I think is a good thing. So a chocolate spice cookie from Switzerland, something a little bit different and something very Milk Street. Catherine, thank you.
8: Thanks, Chris. You can get this recipe for chocolate almond spice cookies at 177milkstreet.com.
1: I'm Christopher Kimball. You're listening to Milk Street Radio. Coming up, Dr. Aaron Carroll sets the record straight on alcohol and health. will be right back. The all-new Lexus GX has an exceptional capability that will have you seeing possibilities you never knew existed. Its advanced technology and luxurious interior mean that wherever you go, you'll never go without. And that includes available dynamic sky panorama glass roof, available front row massaging seats, available 33-inch all-terrain tires, and available multi-terrain select. Live up to the all-new Lexus GX, luxury beyond limits. Experience amazing at your Lexus dealer. You know, I love salmon so much that once in a while, I actually drive up to the Mattapedia River in Quebec to go fly fishing. But that's a whole lot of mileage for very few fish. The rest of the time, of course, I purchase salmon at the supermarket, and most of what I buy is indeed farm-raised. Mowy farm-raised salmon offers restaurant-quality salmon right to your plate, and they have been in the business for over 60 years. It's available in seven different origins, Norway, Scotland, Iceland, Ireland, Faroe Islands, Canada, and Chile. Each has its own distinctive taste and texture. They offer raw salmon fillets, but you can also purchase pre seasoned portions or cold-smoked bites. And Moe Salmon is available ready to eat with cold-smoked ultra-thin slices as well as center-cut loin. Please visit moeysalmon.us to learn more. That's moey, M O W I salmon.us to learn more.
0: Hold up.
1: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. Right now, Sarah Moult and I will be taking more of your calls. Sarah, it's time to open up the phone lines. Are you prepared? You know I am always prepared. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
9: Hi, I'm Jenny. I'm calling from Fairview, North Carolina. How are you? I'm fine. How are you today?
1: I'm pretty good. How can we help you?
9: Well... I love to bake, and I bake a wide variety of yeast breads and quick breads, but I've never really made great biscuits. A few years ago, though, I discovered cream biscuits, and I was delighted. Here was a really easy recipe that turned out, you know, fairly delicious biscuits every time, but every time I go to make them, I catch myself wondering, should the cream be cold or should it be at room temperature? Generally, when you're baking, your liquids and your eggs and butter should be at room temperature. But when you're making biscuits, the lard or, you know, shortening or butter and your buttermilk or milk should be cold. I was pretty sure you two could help me.
1: This is, I just want to say, Sarah, finally, we can answer a question with one word. Cold.
4: Well, actually, I'm oh. a little baffled. Oh, no. Come yeah. on. This
1: was our opportunity to like. <laughs> to you agree. Know, to just say, yeah, cold. I just mean, they're, make they're, it simple. The reason you want. And goodbye, ba- Jenny. We're done. Yeah. No. <laughs> the world's shortest phone call. Yeah. Uh, we don't get paid by the minute. So, no. so in baking, you want to have things from temperature When you're whipping eggs or you're creating a volume,
4: and they'll have more volume.
1: And so you're not doing that here, so cold is fine. Can I
4: just point out the cold business with biscuits and pie dough has to do with the butter. Because if the butter isn't cold by the time you're done working it in, it might have gotten warm so it starts to melt. And you don't want it to melt before you ever get the item or to be that warm. Because what you want to happen when it goes into the oven is for the butter to start melting right then and there and give off steam, which gives lift to the biscuits or the pie dough. Now, here, we're not talking about butter. We're just but, talking about right. cream. So I'm baffled. I don't know the oh, answer. Guys,
1: come on. This is, look— <laughs> when in doubt, cold. Well, no, no. It doesn't. It's not going to come out better if it's warm. So when you make the recipe, okay. the cream's in the refrigerator. Take it out. And use Pour it into the flour and the salt and the baking powder. You're not going to improve the recipe by having warm cream. I, I agree. Can I get...
4: Yes! 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 I'd say the most important thing is to not overwork the dough.
1: I would think that's crucial. And with cream biscuits, it's easy to do. And so when you shape it, you want to use very little pressure. In fact... It's okay if the biscuit, the dough is perfectly put together. It right. can be a little craggy. Yeah. That's really, really important. And that'll make a big difference in rice. I agree with Sarah.
4: I don't cut them out with rounds. I make one big round and then cut it into triangles. Yes. Because that way you work the dough That's even less. Idea. You don't have to rework the scraps to get more rounds. So I would also recommend doing that. That's
9: great.
1: I mean, my favorite recipe for biscuits you might try, though, is the classic, which is two cups of flour, four tablespoons butter, three tablespoons shortening or lard, teaspoon baking powder, half a teaspoon soda, a little salt, and then use buttermilk. And I find that, because you cut the fat in with a food processor, it's less sensitive than a cream biscuit. tends to come out well. But this will do well, especially if you follow Sarah's advice about Using a round and cutting it into like pie like branches. scones into yeah.
4: triangles. And the thing about cream biscuits that I like is it's four ingredients: it's flour, salt, baking powder, and Correct. cream. Because cream yep. does double duty sure. as the fat in the liquid. So after all that, great cold, doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> Good luck. All right, Jenny. All right. Thanks. Take so care. Much. Okay. Bye. Bye.
1: You're listening to Milk Street Radio. If you have a cooking question, please give us a call. that's 855-426-9843, or email us at questions at MilkStreetRadio.com. Welcome to Milk Street. Who's calling?
9: This is Megan from Seattle, Washington. How are you? Good. How are you?
1: Good. How can we help you?
9: Well, I have a question about canola oil versus vegetable oil. When I'm cooking or baking in terms of... Uh, the taste and the properties and what I should be using.
1: You can use anything. Uh, canola oil, I don't like. I it, can't it stand it. It has a it funny, fishy. fishy flavor when heated or odor. Yes. I, and I don't like it, so I don't use it. I use grapeseed oil now. I've sort of shifted over. Uh,
4: safflower is another good and one. And
1: safflower, those are also good.
4: Can you use grapeseed oil in baking? Sure. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely.
9: I guess so. the same amount?
4: Yes. The thing is, uh, where it all becomes relevant, I mean, besides the flavor profile, because as I agree with Chris, I understand I don't like the flavor of canola. But is if you were deep frying, then it's a different question, like what is the smoke point of the particular oil? But if you're just baking and, you know, adding an oil, I think it's nice to have a neutral oil. If they call for vegetable oil, they mean neutral. And grapeseed, okay. you know, is... Really has no flavor. I, you know, I never thought when I went to cooking school that I would celebrate anything that was flavorless. But it does other things. Fat yeah, no, does. but right. if you're
1: sautéing, that pan can get up to 450 degrees or higher. So having a high smoke point oil like grapeseed seeds, just good thing. Yeah, yeah. No, but,
4: but she's talking about baking. Yeah, I thought. So maybe, oh, she said well, cooking both. and baking. Okay, yeah. Both, yeah. Yeah, so two things to take into consideration, the flavor and also the smoke point. And these days, a lot of them, bottles will indicate good for high heat cooking. Don't yeah. they just
1: all say good yeah. for everything? Because they're trying to sell it. One thing I would watch out for, when you take the bottle off the shelf and unscrew the top, mm-hmm. smell it. Because I've absolutely I've was, had this problem. I ran
9: into that with canola oil. Yeah, it it gets rancid.
1: Funky. Yeah, and as soon as it, Gets any kind of real odor, throw it out. It's been sitting around two or three months after the top is open. It's going to be kind of nasty. Yeah.
4: And the enemies are light, heat, and air. Okay. So try to keep it in a cool, dark place and use it up quickly once you've opened it because it oxidizes too. Or the air destroys it. That's what
1: my my wife says about me. We should keep you in a cool, dark place.
4: (laughs) She hasn't done very well, I don't think. No. You're out and about a tad too much,
1: I'd say. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, grape seed would be or safflower, and uh, we don't recommend canola. No. Perfect. Well, thank you so
9: much. I appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, Megan.
1: Yeah, take care.
9: Okay, have a good day.
1: This is Milk Street Radio. I'm Christopher Kimball. It's time for this week's Milk Street Basic. You know, one of my gripes about garlic is the flavor just keeps on giving hours or even days later. And there are lots of ways of solving this problem, but here's a way if you're making pasta. Simply skewer a few cloves on a wooden skewer and drop them into the boiling water along with the pasta. By the time the pasta is cooked through, the cloves will have softened and have a nice mild sweet flavor. Then all you have to do is smash the cloves with the flat side of a chef's knife or between the tines of a fork and add them to your sauce. Now, if you're not making pasta, here's a way to do that for dressings and vinaigrettes. Simply poach the garlic cloves in a small pot of boiling water, then mash the soft cloves into the dressing's acid, the lemon juice or the vinegar, before finishing the dressing. For more culinary tips and ideas, please go to 177milkstreet.com. Next up, it's time for Dr. Aaron Carroll, who tells the truth about diet and health. Dr. Carroll, how are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm good. Uh, Thanks to your advice. I drink red wine. Uh, I uh, MSG a little bit once in a while. It doesn't really bother me. Uh,
7: Cheer me up some more. I'm going to cheer you up a little bit more about alcohol because a lot of the news that you continue to hear keeps talking about the fact that alcohol is unsafe, that there's no safe amount of alcohol or that there's no such thing as a safe level of drinking. And I'm going to continue to push that the news and the the data that supports those kind of statements, it just isn't there.
1: Yeah, I saw that in the news. Was this some fringe group who came up with this, or was this uh, the AMA? No, it was an
7: enormous, enormous uh, group of researchers, uh, mostly out of Europe, funded by the Gates Foundation. And the first thing they did was uh, they did a big background review of all the research that's really ever been done, looking at 23 different alcohol-related health issues. And they also looked at about 700 different sources that estimate uh, how much people drink in all different kinds of countries. Then they conducted some models to say, if you drink so much and these are the risks of problems, you know, what might actually happen? And they came up with a lot of complicated statistics that basically tried to argue that as you drink more, as you'd expect, these health problems show up more and more, and that they are minimized at zero. And basically, therefore, we shouldn't drink at all because anything above zero could be unhealthy. But, you know, there are some things, as always, that you should take away from this. The first is that while some people are going to experience this risk, the overall risks of all this are still incredibly low. So much so that if you drink one drink per day on average, four out of 100,000 people might experience one of those 23 health effects. Only four out of (laughs) 100,000. That's an incredibly unlikely thing to happen. So while that is greater than zero, it's... About zero. I mean, it's it's hard to even imagine they could measure things with such precision. Even at high levels of drinking, something like five drinks per day, it would still take 296 people drinking that amount for one to actually have a bad health effect over the course of a year. So there's no question. Lots of drinking is terrible for us. But the ability for us to say that, that light drinking or even moderate drinking is dangerous is still pretty much unfounded no matter how many times the media want to say it based on literature such as this.
1: Yeah, this gets to a, something you and I have talked about, which is that when they talk about percentage increase of risk, what mm-hmm. they don't do is what you said, which is what is the absolute risk. And yes. I remember the cholesterol study, the Framingham study, which I actually read years ago— And all these percentages they threw around, when you looked at the absolute risk, it was uh, de minimis, you know, it was small. And so could you just talk about how people come up with studies based on percentage increases versus absolute risk?
7: Well, I think what happens most often is that people emphasize what we call the relative risk because that is always a larger number. It's what's sensational it's what drives news, it what drives fear. And if your goal is to make people afraid, then talking about the relative risk increase is absolutely the way to go because you know we could even argue that even if this isn't I think it's less than one percent but even if we say it's a you know half to one percent increase which still might make some people afraid, it's still just four out of 100,000. In fact, if you look at the absolute risk, it goes from 914 per 100,000 to 918 per 100,000, which means that more than 99,000 out of 100,000 people have no effect at all, about 914 have an effect no matter if they drink or not, and only in four people does it make a difference. And if you talk about numbers like that, people don't care, and that's what we want because There's no reason to be that worried about this. In fact, we want to encourage people to have a healthy relationship with food and with drink and to not be so fearful all the time. But if we only focus on the bad like this and we emphasize it so much, people become afraid. I'm going to put this another way. I am sure that if people ate 15 desserts a day, uh, it would be very unhealthy and i'm sure that the safest number of desserts is 0 yet we're not going to see any headlines that say there's no safe amount of dessert <laughs> and people should only have no dessert we recognize that of course too much is bad and you know there's no need for it but we like it and it improves our quality of life it's okay to have it once in a while so i have two questions from a statistical
1: point of view going from 914 to 918 would seem to me to be something that would be well within the range of of statistical noise, right?
7: Yes. And so the problem here is that because they're doing these big meta analyses and grouping so many studies together, what they have is databases of something like 28 million people. And at databases of 28 million people, you achieve statistical significance with no real clinical significance. Right. And so I'd argue that you're you're exactly right. Even if it's four per one hundred thousand difference, even if it is statistically significant, it just doesn't mean anything at an individual level. We can talk about population level decisions, and perhaps we should recognize that worldwide alcohol can be a problem, especially for people that consume huge amounts of it. But there's just nothing that we can almost really say about individual effects at very low levels where people are either light or moderately drinking.
1: And my last question, I know the answer to this before I ask it, but I'm, I'm I feel compelled. I- <laughs> can't shut up uh the gates foundation is a serious organization bill gates has provided absolutely tons of money for mosquito nets in in africa and other things that are very worthwhile so they do a study which you and i agree uh you know four people per hundred thousand is relatively meaningless and yet the headlines blare out no alcohol is the only safe level H- how do you go from a to b and, and why are we going from a to b
7: So we should also recognize that when the Gates Foundation funds this, I don't think they're specifically funding a study of alcohol. What they're doing is a huge, it's a huge study of global health risks, trying to look at all kinds of risks that worldwide could be, make people healthier or less healthy. Um, This just happens to be a study on alcohol. And it's not just the Gates Foundation, this was published in The Lancet. An enormously reputable journal, a huge journal. And so I'm not even questioning the science. I'm not questioning the researchers. I'm not questioning the funding or the journal. It's just how we take the study and how we apply it to our lives and what we eat and drink. And there's a real misperception here, an ability to say, well, we have something that is statistically significant but very small. Therefore, I should make individual changes to my life. You almost can never do that.
1: Good. Well, I'm going to have an old-fashioned tonight, um, just one, but I'm I'm going to enjoy every little bit of it. Dr. Carroll, uh, thanks for setting us straight and making our lives just a little bit happier. Thank you. Thank you. That was Dr. Aaron Carroll. He's a professor of pediatrics at Indiana University School of Medicine, also a regular contributor to the New York Times Upshot column. America has been called a place of extremes. We feel that it's our birthright to have an opinion, no matter how nuts it might be. Moderation is a weakness. You're either all in or all out. And that's particularly true of dietary guidelines. As Dr. Carroll mentioned, a new study says that any alcohol is damaging. Now, we could add a lot of foods to that list. MSG, artificial sweeteners, coffee fats, and, of course, sugar. I recently saw a film about a woman who swam from the shark-infested waters around the Farallon Islands to San Francisco, almost 30 miles. She's survived, but along the way, I seem to have missed the point. So tonight, I'll just head to the pool, do a few laps, and then head home for a cocktail and some pulled pork. Moderation is my new prescription for a happy life. That's it for this week's show. If you tuned in too late or just want to listen again, you can download Milk Street Radio and Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, Stitcher, Google Play, or Spotify. Please remember to subscribe to the show. That way you'll get every episode downloaded to your phone or tablet each week. If you want to learn more about us at Milk Street, please go to 177milkstreet.com. You can find each week's recipe, watch the new season of our TV show, subscribe to our magazine, or order our new cookbook, Milk Street Tuesday Nights. We'll be back next week with more food stories, and thanks for listening.
9: Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is produced by Milk Street in association with WGBH. Executive producer Melissa Baldino, senior audio editor Melissa Allison, producer Annie Sinzaba, associate producer Jackie Nowak, and production help from Debbie Paddock. Senior audio engineer Douglas Sugertz, additional editing from Vicki Merrick and Sydney Lewis, and audio mixing from Jay Allison at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. Theme music by 2 Bob Crew. Additional music by George Brendel Egloff. Christopher Kimball's Milk Street Radio is distributed by PRX.